Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, dealing with a reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John, this sixth chapter, the 24th to the 35th verse. We are in this sixth chapter of John, which is, a, which is John's Eucharistic chapter. And we, we have looked before at the reason, for instance, that John does not have an institutional narrative for the Eucharist. And, uh, and yet he approaches it in, in a very different sort of way, but a very profound sort of way. John's Gospel is written somewhere near the end of the first century, and, uh, which means that the Christian Church, um, ever since the death of the Lord, has been celebrating the Eucharist. It's, a, it's an essential part of the life of the believing disciple. And so they have also been the recipients of the kerygma, that is the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the apostles in the local communities. Um, those proclamations, that kerygma, started to become written down by the communities of the early church as the, uh, as the apostles themselves began to die. And in, in their death, um, they, uh, they, of course, were leaving a vacuum in this proclamation. And people were concerned, how do we preserve this apostolic tradition? How do we remember this in order that we might pass it on? And so the evangelists emerge as the ones who then decide to write down the apostolic kerygma so that the community can have access to the early preaching of the church, the early preaching of the apostles. So that all of this has been going on within the Christian churches um, by the time that John writes his gospel. So it becomes kind of just... um, uh, repetitive for him to go back and tell the story which has been being told in the local communities of the church probably, well, probably at least for 50, perhaps even 60 or 70 years, depending on how how people follow the dating of the Gospel of John. Um, we know that it was that for those who want to kind of deny the absolute Johannine authorship, the gospel is pushed back even later. But there's very strong arguments within the biblical scholarly community that adheres very closely to the fact that John really is the author of the fourth gospel and not the community of the beloved disciple. And that uh, while there certainly have been editing and redactions on it, it is essentially the witness and the testimony of the Apostle John. So that John then is stepping into an already established Christian tradition, a tradition which celebrates the Eucharist and a tradition which listens attentively at these Eucharistic celebrations to the proclamation of the kerygma, which has been extracted from the apostolic preaching and has been therefore written down by the scribes in the early church. It kind of makes us realize, in a sense, of course, that the gospel, the gospels, um, that the Bible itself is the product of the believing community and not the source and creation of the believing community. So that it is, has an unbreakable relationship to the oral proclamation of the apostolic word. This is to come, of course, when we get 
later on all through history, of course, there's, there's difficulties and problems with that. But it comes under direct attack in the middle of the 20th century um, with the whole catechetical movement and, and the, the rewriting of the theology of Revelation um, that began to take place in, in, in that part of the history of the church. People like Gabriel Moran and Thomas Groom and now um, in a contemporary sort of way, Levin Bove, Abuve, who um, all of them are changing the whole notion of revelation, which was prevalent in the early church and prevalent also all the way up um, until into the 20th century. So uh, now we are certainly in a crisis concerning the nature of revelation, um, at least in scholarly theology. But the proclamation within the local communities, the reliance upon the kerygma as it comes to us out of the Gospels, is still an essential part of the everyday life of the Church and the everyday life of the people of the Church. Some of those peoples have imbibed of the new wave of anti-traditional um, theologies of, of revelation, which uh, are manifestations of the of the great movement in the 18th and the 19th century um, to push revelation as being the given coming to us from outside and then restoring it in a way is to be not restoring it but recreating it as kind of a truly and purely subjective reality now there is there is in all of this a moderated understanding of all of this, one which reaches far back into tradition, and that, of course, is uh, is Ratzinger's theology of the Word, in which he does demand a receiving subject for re- for revelation to be a living and an acting reality, not a set of propositions. But that does not change the nature of the content of revelation, but it interprets how that is received into people's lives and into the believing community, which is actually, as far as Orthodox Christianity goes, it is basically the movement toward the incorporation of new insights concerning revelation that have come to light in in following centuries, but nevertheless does not ever replace the idea that the initial revelation has a content to it that is proclaimed in the kerygma of the apostles. So we 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 stand there then in in this very very um, this very very uh, difficult yet at the same time very simple crossroads of our theological understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, then, it helps us in a way when we take Ratzinger's approach. It helps us in a way to go back to the Gospel of John because what Ratzinger does with Revelation is what John does with Revelation. He reinterprets that which is so that in such a way it is communicable to individuals, communicable to subjects, communicable to the community in a way which retains the integrity of Revelation and yet deepens our own insight into it. So John, they oftentimes in the... In the Anglican tradition, they always call him John the Divine, um, meaning that he is the master of divinity. And uh, But he is certainly 
the great thinker and the great theologian of the apostolic community and the one who has had at least a half a century to observe and to ponder the practice of Christianity and the life experience of Christians as he goes back then and reveals to us this deeper level of reality that is found in his gospel concerning the person of Jesus Christ and concerning also the sacraments of Jesus Christ. When we get to the gospel today, when the people saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and crossed to Capernaum to look for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, this particular passage in the gospel um, follows on the feeding of the 5,000. Now, that doesn't mean that 5,000 people crossed and, and crowded into Capernaum, but certainly the crowd that does follow him there are part of those who have partaken of uh, the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, the ma- miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Another issue, another problem, there are those who like to interpret that feeding of the 5,000 and say, oh, well, the real miracle was that people shared. Well, you know, that's kind of the Marvel comic rendition of John's Gospel. That has nothing to do with what the text says. That, as a matter of fact, Jesus in John's Gospel is the master of the signs, the signs that show who he is and that demonstrate and display the truth and the reality of who he has come to be. And so, basically, the signs are moments of revelation in which the sinfulness of human nature is pushed back by the intervention of the creator, of the one, in order that it might show to us how the world was supposed to have been before so human sinfulness encrusted it with its own sinfulness and therefore distorted the vision. It's like Paul says in his letters, we see now as though through a glass darkly. Well, the creators of the glass darkly is, in fact, humanity, and that which darkens the glass is their sinfulness. The, the signs, the miracles in the Gospels are the pushing back of the darkness in order for us to see the reality of the restored creation of what it was supposed to be. Certainly, in, as it came forth from the hands of God, it was a land of plenty. And that's what's demonstrated in the, uh, in, in the feeding of the 5,000. Um, the land of plenty, however, is not restricted, and here becomes now the problem um, with this crowd from the feeding of the 5,000 traipsing after Jesus to where they go to Capernaum. And so they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're asking a practical, a material question, which shows that they still have not risen above this level of, of being totally self-centered, of being to- totally self-absorbed of being totally immersed in a world that is encrusted with a materialism which does not bespeak the authenticity and the truth of the primordial creation that Jesus reveals to them in his miracles and his signs. So Jesus says to them, I tell you most solemnly, you're not looking for me because you have seen signs. By this, he he's referring to the signs that reveal who he is, the miraculous encounters between himself as the Son of God and the created order as it was intended to be, but because you had all the bread you wanted to eat. In other words, your material desires were fulfilled, and so this has fascinated you, and now now you want more. 
Um, and I think that we know this is true. Whenever we, we reduce religion to materiality, there is never enough. Whenever we obscure the core and the heart of the created order, who is the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ, then nothing is ever enough. And uh, we certainly see that in the world today. We find, for instance, people scheming to raise more money when they already have billions to, in, in, in their coffers. What is that? What is that all about? And why is that something worth dealing with? Why is that something worth pursuing? Um, and it doesn't have to be the billionaires. Those with little can be greedy as well. Um, so it is just the nature of an inordinate attachment to the material world. But the, so Jesus says to him, this is kind of what you're talking about, this attachment to the material world. But then he says, do not work for food that cannot last, but work for food that endures to eternal life. The kind of food the Son of Man is offering to you, for on him the Father, God himself, has set his seal. Jesus is now saying the materialism of your lives is simply not an end in itself. It is somehow or other a platform of consciousness, a platform of understanding, with, uh, which allows you to move beyond it in the depths of your own understanding, your own being, your own comprehension of the realities of life. And they said to him, well, what must we do if we are to do the works that God wants? And Jesus gave them this answer, this is working for God. You must believe in the one he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign will you give to show us that we should believe in you? What work will you do? Our fathers had to manna to eat in the desert, and Scripture says he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Their question then, think about the question. Think about, and, and it's, not, it's not something foreign to our own life experience, but Jesus says, you know, and he, and he says this when in the Gospel of Matthew, those are my mother and my brothers and sisters are those who, who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, those who believe. And so he says, all right, you've got all of your material concerns and realities, but now believe in the one that God has sent. In other words, believe in me as, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one who has come to you. And then they say to him, outrageously so, will show us a sign. Well, hasn't he already showed them a sign? They don't want the sign of revelation coming from miracle. They want the sign of wonder worker. Very different. And that's the reason they all crowded to him in the first place. Well, because I say, oh, this guy is a wonder worker. This guy is a healer. Um, you know, and turn, on, and turn on the TV. I don't know if it's still as prevalent as it ever was, but certainly everywhere you go, you, you have, you know, Ernest Ainsley or, or whoever, you know, healing people and drawing, and drawing huge audiences by the, you know, by the very fact that they do that. And so um, our fathers had manna in the desert. So now they're going back and saying that this whole idea of manna in the desert was, a, was purely a, a material reality. 
purely something that satisfied the material hunger of the people. And uh, they miss the whole faith dimension of that, the whole faith dimension, just as in the feeding of the 5,000, that God in his abundance can take care of his own in the material world. We find this also, you know, in, in, in the Gospels when Jesus is saying, don't worry about stuff like that. Um, you know, the lilies are clothed in beauty and so forth. Um, and he's not giving impractical advice to sit down and do nothing that Paul corrects in Second Thessalonians. But what he is doing is telling them, reorder your priorities, lift up your eyes from, from the ground and look up to the possibilities that you as human persons uh, possess, that look up to the possibilities that are there for all of you. And Jesus says, I tell you most solemnly, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the bread from heaven, the true bread. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Using the imagery of bread is kind of a fundamental um, dietary requirement in almost any culture. Um, some kind of starch food lies at the root of the basic human diet. And, uh, and so he says then, um, you know, that this is an image for you. This is a lesson, a teaching from you. That's why I'm saying the bread which comes down from heaven gives life to the world, for this is the fundamental necessary requirement for the full realization of our humanity is the acknowledgement of the existence of the living God, the living God as creator, the living God as the one who sustains and lifts us up, redeems us and sanctifies us and brings us toward a greater depth and a greater fulfillment of our own human personhood. It is not in some way, shape or form kind of uh, a welcome into the kingdom of make-believe or anything like that. It is a foundational requirement for the full realization of humanity. A very strong thing to say, because what it says to us is without this realization, humanity has a long way and a long struggle to go in order for it to come to know itself and it does not live peacefully with itself or with others until it has a grasp of who it truly is. While the church offers this, it becomes quite clear that not everyone in the church um, buys this and that there is a great depth of, of materialism within the church, not the materialism, the good materialism of the created order, which we find in sacrament, but the distractions of the material world, which satisfy specific needs, carnal needs of the human person, whether it's only for food or only for comfort or only for pleasure or only for gratification or anything like that, that is not intended in any way, shape, or form to provide those to us because those are distractions to the human person from the great challenge, the great quest to find who they are. We find this thing that, that the crowd is doing about the bread. We find it in the modern world. We find people have decided that, you know, faith is old-fashioned, but somehow or other good works never go out of style. And so we have people replacing the faith in Jesus Christ with works. Um, faith in Jesus Christ with, um, we find, social justice Christians 
Well, what is that? That's not Christian. Social justice certainly is Christian, and doing so out of love of God and neighbor is certainly a worthy cause and part of the mission of the church and has always been part of the mission of the church, even in the apostolic community, set aside something for the poor. At the same time, as a substitute for faith, it is inadequate and destructive, ultimately, to the human person and human society. So those people have already rejoined this unbelieving materialistic crowd and are not really full participants, therefore, in the full life of the church. Those who espouse even external um, conformity to the church and yet lead double lives without repentance, without acknowledgement, without seeking reconciliation. Everyone sins in some way, shape, or form, and some sin grievous. But there is always that reconciliation, always coming to know and to understand um, how destructive that is to the human person, not only the self but to others. And this turning away from and turning back, we have the stories of the great uh, penitents. Um, certainly the great conversion of Augustine, but also the great conversion of Margaret of Cortona. Um, when, when we find the great conversion of Ignatius Loyola and so forth, the turning away from that materialism back, back into some kind of sense of the reality of the human person and the reality of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, I tell you most solemnly, it was not Moses, but God who gave you that bread, then that bread becomes a tool, a useful experience to move beyond the materiality of the, of the physical hunger and to begin to realize the emptiness that exists in the human life without in some way, shape, or form the presence of God. And so they said to Jesus then, they're beginning to see there's something more to this than they thought before. And so they said, well, give us this bread then, always. And Jesus says to them then in this, in this dramatic conclusion of this gospel passage, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He now reveals to them who he is, and he starts with that very dramatic line, I am the bread of life. That whole I am use in the Gospel of St. John is a proclamation of the divinity of Christ. The I am is, is, is brought first into focus in the story of Moses and the burning bush, when Moses said to them, who shall I tell sent me? And and the, the burning bush answers him, tell them I am sent you. And so this formal name of God, which cannot be spoken by faithful Jews without incurring blasphemy, because the name and the, and the being are the same thing in Hebrew, and therefore, to say the name is to claim some kind of control or some kind of power over the person whose name they know and say. That is why naming in the Old Testament is so incredibly important. It defines the person, and it gives the one who names control in some way, shape, or form responsibility over that person. We see that in the book of Genesis, where God allows Adam to name the animals. <clears throat> It is, in some way, shape, or form, um, God giving Adam sovereignty over the natural world, something which we have also learned through the Enlightenment, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, uh, and the scientific revolution, to simply disregard that is part of the very important um, part of uh, 
of, of our responsibilities to the created order. We're not into all the political, um, scientific, um, meteorological um, talk, but the fact of having a sacred obligation to care for the created order is something that comes to us from the very beginning from God. And that in some way, shape, or form, the Jews recognize this in refusing to say the sacred name, the Tetragrammaton, um, the name I am as it exists in Hebrew, for that is to claim some kind of sovereignty over the divine, which they could never do without blaspheming. But Jesus does it, and this is part of what enrages his audience. But he says, I am, and then he said, the bread of life. It is an ident- it, is a, it is a phrase of identification. The real substance of human existence is I am. The real f- <coughs> foundation and platform of, uh, of human meaning, human purpose, human origin, human destiny is I am, is the living God. How does that living God then become part and the foundation of ourselves as human persons, ourselves as human beings? And this is the this is the whole intent of the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. He is the bread of life. He is therefore the foundation of meaning and of existence. And he who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He doesn't mean in this the material things that they have been talking about. He is talking to us, he is speaking to us instead of that human hunger, that human need, that human thirst for meaning, for purpose, uh, for destiny, for, for all of those kinds of things. We can't have it without him because he is the foundation of that. He is the bread of life. And so when we want to replace the I am with what I do, then, of course, we have misunderstood and distorted the whole thing. When we want to replace the I am with me, then somehow or other we are guilty of self-idolatry, a form of narcissism. And we find that rampant within our society. When people gather, for instance, in the name of Jesus Christ and only celebrate themselves and only say how wonderful we are, um, this is the crowd that comes tromping over to Capernaum. Yeah, they're following Jesus in a sort of a way, but refusing to hear what he says, refusing to accept what he says, refusing in any way, shape, or form to acknowledge the meaningfulness of his existence and the necessity of his existence for their own life of meaning and purpose. When we look at this text then, and as we begin now to enter more deeply into the sixth chapter of John, into the Eucharistic chapter of John, the one that is a reflection 50, 60 years later after the regular practice of the Eucharistic celebration in the Christian community and the regular proclamation of the Kerygma, what we find then now is John is beginning to open that up for us, to explicate that for us so that we can in some way, shape, or form come to know more deeply the, the mystery of his presence among us and the necessity of his presence within us. As we reflect upon this gospel, let us ask the Lord to guide us and to direct us into a deeper understanding of the mystery of Jesus Christ as word, as the bread of life, as I am, as the one necessary for meaning and purpose, not only in our personal lives, 
but in our world. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So